1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 to 21. If you're able to stand, stand for the, the reading of God's word. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that indeed your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, that your word is everlasting, and your word continues to transform our hearts and sanctify us according to your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it would yield much fruit in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Now, the Christian life can get depressing at times. Sometimes you feel as if you're fighting a losing battle against sin. Sometimes you feel like a weirdo for believing the things that you believe, especially when you're ridiculed by some of your family and, and friends. And then what's even more discouraging is when you see the rampant false teaching and funny business in, in the broader church. And perhaps you thought, man, is this really worth it? Is God really going to be able to achieve all his purposes in this world and in his church in the midst of all this mess? Well, as you've seen through the reading of uh, God's word, we finally reached 
the end of our journey in 1 Timothy. And so next week we'll be picking up again in uh, Genesis, Genesis 37, if you want to read ahead for that. So in, in this concluding passage, Paul gives his final charge to Timothy in the midst of, as we've seen, a very challenging church situation in his context that was riddled with false teachers, with heresies, with all sorts of sins in the church, with divisions. And so what we're going to see this morning in this text, and it lies at the heart of, of Paul's charge to Timothy, is that because Christ is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, we are to fight the good fight of the faith. Because Christ is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, we are to fight the good fight of the faith. So three points, fight the good fight, secondly, true life, and lastly, guard the deposit. So let's get into it. Fight the good fight from, from verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness, gentleness. So what are these things that Paul is telling Timothy to flee. Well, he's telling him to do a lot of things there. See, a lot of imperatives. Okay, flee, hold fast, fight. But what are the things that he's telling Timothy to flee? Well, if you remember from last week, it dealt with the, the passage just preceding this. They are the things that Timothy is to flee. So from chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, those things that Timothy is to flee is that is doctrine that departs from the teaching of Scripture and the associated sins that come from believing false doctrine. And Paul uh, lists a whole lot of them from um, arrogance to uh, this desire to stir up controversy and division in the church, to gossip about others, to have depraved and evil thinking. And the sin that he most especially focuses on, which we looked at last week, is this love of money, this idolatry of, of mammon, and this proto-prosperity gospel, this belief that, that Christianity is, is a means to get rich. And so Paul commands Timothy to flee these things. But he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't say, just flee these things with nothing else. He says, flee these things, and instead... Pursue something else. And what, is, what are the things that he is to pursue? Well, he lists them here in verse 11. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Basically, he's called to pursue a godly life. A life lived in obedience to, to the word of God. A life of integrity of actively putting sin to death, of delighting in God and, and glorifying Him and, and being increasingly conformed to Christ by His Spirit. So verse 12 continues. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So what we see here in this text, is that the Christian life is likened to being in the midst of a battle, likened to being in a fight, okay, in a war, 
And what's the nature of this battle? Well, it's not a physical battle. We don't go and, you know, go on crusades and kill Muslims and other heretics. Instead, it's a, a spiritual battle. Okay, it's a spiritual battle between good and evil, between truth and lies, between the kingdom of Christ and the powers and principalities of darkness. And especially in the context of this letter, the powers of darkness are manifested most clearly through false doctrine in the church. That is a clear manifestation of demonic powers, is false teaching. Because why? Well, we know that Satan is the father of all lies. And what he specializes in is um, deception and he wants nothing more better to do than um, to deceive God's church and, and lead God's people astray through strange and, and false teachings that would cause them to swerve away from the one true faith in Christ and to then ensnare them through sin and condemn them to hell for all eternity. So this is a real battle. Okay, souls are at stake here. Eternities are at stake here. And so in the midst of this, Paul calls Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. So how is he to do it? How are we to fight? Because we are also enlisted to fight in this battle. Okay, well, the scripture provides us two ways. Firstly, is that we are to actively oppose false teaching. We are to confront it head on. Yeah, we to call out, call, well, for, for pastors and elders to call out doctrine that is, is false is one of the ways in which they shepherd the flock. Okay, so they um, protect the flock. We keeping them from wolves who who seek to enter into the flock and, and to destroy and, and devour the church. So there's a special duty of pastors and elders to do this, to protect the flock from false teaching and not to shy away from, from confrontation in, in, in this regard. And I know there's this <clears throat> tendency in, in, um, uh, yeah, in our context that you know, we shouldn't say anything in, in church that would offend. Uh, we mustn't say anything um, negative. Um, we must be seeker sensitive um, about these things. But I mean, if you look at the, the New Testament, that's not the pattern we see there. The, there's a lot of polemics going on. Okay, the, the apostles and even Jesus are not afraid to call out false teaching and even to name names. And so it's a good and godly thing to, to call out heresies and see them for what they are. Okay, for example, from the destructive nature of the prosperity gospel, that's why I was called out last week. Then to the so-called progressive Christianity, which would affirm um, evils like the LGBT agenda. These things need to be called out because this people of God need to be spared from the destruction that will come if you go down that path. 
So firstly, we fight the good fight in actively opposing false teaching. Secondly, we fight the good fight by actively holding fast to the truth. And so the rest of of verse 12 is full of this. It says, take hold, grasp the gift of grace in Christ, the eternal life that we find only in him by which God has sovereignly chose or elected you to inherit. Okay, there's a promise of the, um, of the truth that in Christ, because God has elected us, he has chosen us in Christ, unconditional election, uh, salvation is ours forever. That, so that eternal life is a guarantee for us if we in Christ. He will empower us by his spirit to persevere to the end. We if we don't, it's not a, we don't save ourselves, thankfully. God saves us through, through the work of Christ. There's a reminder of that here, of, um, the truth of, of our election and how God will promise eternal life, does promise eternal life to his elect. And so we t- to take hold of the truth of our salvation, the truth of, of our election, of our faith in Christ, that's that we have confessed, because not only have we been elected in Christ and predestined to salvation, but we also confess our faith in Christ. And so we to, to root ourselves, therefore, in God's word, in sound doctrine, in, in the truth of the gospel, in order that we would be able to withstand the teaching, false teaching, and the lure of the spirit of the sage, and not be... Um, kids in the faith anymore, swept around by various winds of doctrine and, and get duped by every passing fad. Um, being rooted in the word of God sets us on a strong foundation. So how is it that we are to hold fast to, to God's truth? Well, the next two verses tell us, verses 13 to 14. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how are we told fast to, to God's truth? Well, the answer is to keep the commandment. What is meant by the commandment? Well, we'd say that it's the sum of God's law. It's the the word of God, essentially. And it's precisely for this reason that as Christians, we we are to read it as often as we, we can. We are to study it. And especially, and most importantly, we are to hear it preached every Lord's Day. As we see in the, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 155, it is especially by the, the preaching of the Word of God, hearing the Word of God that, that, that is effectual in our lives to salvation and sanctification, that the Lord uses the preached Word in a special way to work in us by the power of the Spirit. That's why we call it one of the, the means of, of grace. And this then causes us, our, our, our um, holding on to the word of God causes us to, to live in obedience then to his word, to, to live a life that is free from reproach, avoiding sin and, and temptation 
uh, fearing God, longing for Christ's return, who is our true hope, the perfecter and finisher of our faith. And that's why the, the, the text now transitions to these glorious couple of verses all about Jesus's return. And this is from verses 15 to 16. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and dominion, an eternal dominion. Amen. So we call to hold fast to the truth, to God's word, to persevere in faithful obedience in the, the midst of, of, of ridicule from family and friends, from opposition, from the trials and, and challenges of our life. We are to fight the good fight. Why? Well, because we know the outcome of the battle. And the outcome of our battle, in the, in, or the battle, in case you haven't read till the end, is that Jesus wins. Yeah, you want a summary for the book of Revelation? Jesus wins. Our Lord Jesus Christ will return in victory and in triumph and finally crush the head of the serpent, our enemy. And so the good news for us who believe in Christ is that we are on the winning side in this battle. We know the outcome of the war. And so Jesus' return will mark a, a fulfillment of history known throughout the, old, the prophets of the Old Testament and brought into New Testament as the day of the Lord, which is an allusion to it here in, in verse 15, this appointed proper time when Christ will return. When he will appear upon, all, uh, upon the earth, when every single human being on this earth will see him somehow at the same time, and he will judge the living and the dead. He will cast all his enemies, including Satan, into the lake of fire where they will suffer eternal destruction under the wrath of God. And so what we have in these two verses is an awesome, and that's the proper word for this, Word. It's an awesome description of the glorified Christ, that he is called the blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so what we have here is, is unambiguous language regarding Christ's divinity. If there's any doubt to whether the New Testament says that Jesus is God, that doubt is dispelled in many places but it's dispelled especially here jesus is the sovereign god this is this is what this text is clearly saying he's the the true king who rules over all kings and powers and rulers and presidents both earthly and spiritual any of you watch the coronation yesterday what was the first thing what was the first, the opening line of the coronation service? It was essentially a statement that the, the, the king of kings and lord of lords is sovereign over this king which is going to be crowned today. It was an acknowledgement 
that King Charles III, though he is a king in the United Kingdom, he rules under the sovereignty of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And that is good and the correct understanding of the right place of a king. So Jesus has supreme power of over all things as the sovereign Lord and King. And, and that's why Acts 17.28 says, In him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. That's why a glorious passage in Colossians 1.15-17, which also was read at the coronation service, says that he is the Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together isn't that Glorious description of the power and authority of Christ. That there is nothing, there is no one who does not fall under the sovereign rule of God. Even in this age if they refuse to acknowledge it. Yet the day is coming when even every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Philippians 2, 10 to 11 says. So in fact, the Lord Jesus is the only true and living God who has, verse 16 carries on, who has immortality. So in other words, he is the only one who can't die. He is the only eternal one. The only one who is uncreated, who dwells in unapproachable light, which no one right now can, can see. We, we can't yet glimpse upon his glory and his radiance and his purity and holiness. Why? Are we sinful? But one day, those of us who have been raised up to eternal life in Christ, the promise in God's word is that we will be able to gaze upon our God and see him face to face and worship him. He our God and we his people for all eternity in, in the new creation. So brothers and sisters, we need to press on and fight the good fight of the faith because we have a promise that Christ will empower us to persevere in this age by his spirit and that he will return victorious over sin and death and vanquish the enemy once and for all. And so therefore he alone is the one who is worthy of all our honor, praise, and worship. So bring us to our next point, true life. From verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, if you remember from last week's passage, we saw that the word of God says that the love of money is a root of, of all kinds of evils. 
And we also saw in that passage, we also see here is that what the, the Bible is not saying is that it's not sinful to be rich. But rather, it's showing that the, that the problem is when money becomes an idol. When money captures our hearts. And when we love money more than God, that is sinful. And the problem with, with being rich is that that tends to be more of a temptation. So what we see here in verse 17 is instruction for those Christians who are rich. And the text says pretty clearly that just because you are rich, don't let that get to your head. Don't think that you are superior in any way or expect better treatment from from others or or look down upon um, people and believers who are poorer than you. Because we know the truth of the gospel that in Christ, we're all equal before the Lord. And it's also saying that we are not to find our security in our wealth. Because, take it, it's uncertain. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow, so it's a lot wiser to put your hope in something eternal, not something temporal. And that something eternal is in God himself and Christ and his benefits, which is everlasting and heavenly treasure. So not only does the text say that, but it says that it is God who richly provides us with everything that we have now in this present age. That's saying us that God alone is the one who provides us um, with our daily bread, with a place to live, with with income, with family, with friends, uh, with clothing, and and all our worldly possessions. All these things are are gifts to us from from the Lord, an expression of his his hand of providence in our lives. And these things are not evil in themselves, but they've been given to us by God, specifically, as the text says, for us to enjoy. These are expressions of of his common grace, good things that God gives to his people. In the next two verses, continue, verse 18 to 19, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So how then are we to live, especially if God has, has blessed us with wealth? You see from, from these verses that God calls us to be a good steward of what he has, has given us. So we're instructed here that we're to use what he's given us to, to glorify him by, by doing good, by serving each other, by loving each other, by being rich in good works through primarily our generosity. So whether that's being ready to share and use your wealth to bless others, particularly the brothers and sisters in Christ who, who I need, and through supporting the work of the local church. And the reason the Lord calls us to do this is in verse 19. That it's actually the best possible thing we could do with our money. It's the best possible use of our resources. It's actually the best investment that we can make. Because if if you set your heart upon God, 
and use what he has given you to glorify him, what you do is that you store up for yourself treasure in heaven and you lay a good foundation for the future, as the text said, which is life that is truly life. And what is the nature of that life that is truly life? Is it living like a rock star on this side of eternity and um, having a mansion and a Ferrari and the promises of the prosperity gospel? No. The life that is true life, true life is eternal life. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, 92. We read it last week, but it's relevant for this text too, where he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So what the, the text here is not at all saying is that, well, yeah, if you give a whole lot of money to God, you know, you, you buy your way into heaven. Okay? No. Okay? Salvation is through one way and one way alone, and that is through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But instead, what the, um, God's word is, is instructing us here and is encouraging us here is that how you faithfully steward wealth for God's glory will demonstrate that your hope is, is not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly gives eternal life to us through Christ. So bring us to our final point, God the deposit from verse 20, 21. O Timothy, God the deposit entrusted to you, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by professing it some have swerved from the faith grace be with you so we've now reached the concluding words of of the letter and we've got here paul's final charge to timothy as he passes this church in, in ephesus which has been facing all sorts of challenges as we've been seeing and so the last couple of words he says God, the deposit entrusted to you. What is this deposit that has been entrusted to Timothy? Well, we must always look at what the whole book has been saying and what has been going on throughout this letter. And it's clear that that deposit is sound doctrine or which is code word for the gospel. The true gospel. Because where the false teachers were teaching at, at Timothy's church, and they still, false teachers still teach the same thing today. Remember, there's nothing new underneath the sun. These heresies you know, get recycled every generation. So what they were, they were teaching then and still teach now is that you need to earn your way up to God through doing various things. Whether it's practicing mystical practices, whether it's seeking new divine revelation, which is uh, Gnosticism, and there's explicit reference to Gnosticism in, in this verse here with regard to knowledge, um, whether it's practicing uh, miracles, that that's the way you get favor with God, 
or whether it's giving a whole lot of money and thinking that's going to save you. Well, brothers and sisters, the true gospel is none of that. The true gospel is nothing that we can do. Instead, the true gospel is what God has already done for us in Christ. And we saw that right in the beginning of 1 Timothy in chapter 1, 15, that the true gospel is that Christ came into this world to save sinners. That he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And because of this, because of what God has done for us in Jesus, we trust in him. He grants us undeserved mercy and grace, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, life that is truly life, heavenly, everlasting, invaluable treasure, much better than any, far superior to any earthly riches. And so then Paul calls Timothy to avoid the false teachings like a plague, and he calls them irreverent babble, okay, false knowledge, which causes people to shipwreck their faith or to swerve and crash in their faith. And then finally he ends with grace, that the grace of Christ himself, the, the, which is, what is grace? Well, it is the promise of forgiveness of sins, God's mercy and his steadfast love, that this would strengthen us as the church now and forever. So as we wrap up this sermon and also essentially the whole book, brothers and sisters, what you believe really does matter because there are massive implications for your life now in terms of what you believe and for all eternity. And what we've seen throughout this letter is, is that embracing false doctrine leads you into sin. Okay? Or you can look at the other way around. If we are if we are ensnared by sin, well it's because we've believing something false. And then that causes us to 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 harden your heart, to continue to swerve away from the faith, rejecting ultimately the truth of Christ. And the consequence for that is a dire consequence is an eternity in hell, separated from the favor of God and facing his wrath for all eternity. The serious stuff. And so this is why the letter ends the way it does for this, this uh, charge to guard the deposit. A deposit of God's truth, of his gospel, has been made in every single one of us. Guard it. Don't just see it as, as something yeah, disposable. What you, what the Lord has deposited in your heart in terms of the truth of the gospel is worth fighting for. That is why we are called to fight the good fight. To hold fast to the faith. That Christ came for the very worst of sinners. 
that he paid our debt for sins on the cross, that he rose again on the third day, granting us undeserved mercy and grace, the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life, which is truly life. So brothers and sisters, repent and receive Christ and know that he will sustain you by his spirit in the midst of this battle until he returns and look forward to his coming in glory. Look forward to that day when he will conquer the enemy, where he will crush Satan under his feet once and for all and when he will rule and reign victoriously as our sovereign king of kings and lord of lords amen